by clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. Well-Rounded is your resource for all things healthcare, business, and policy. Your hosts today are Isabel Rosenthal and Lauren Tronic, a resident and medical student. This episode discusses why many clinicians are excited about the possibility of a single-payer health system. Our guest is Dr. Paul Song, a radiation oncologist at the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, part-time practitioner at Dignity California Hospital, where he sees Medicaid and uninsured patients, and he's the president of California Physicians for a National Healthpayer Program. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Hey everyone, it's Isabel and Lauren. Hi everybody. Today with us we have Dr. Paul Song. He is a board-certified radiation oncologist and currently sitting as the president of the California chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Song. Thanks for having me. So um, just to get us started, what is Physicians for a National Health Program? Um, what, is, what is your mission? So our uh, organization has several thousand doctors throughout the United States who are committed to educating the public on what a single-payer Medicare for All program is. We advocate for uh, the implementation of such a plan in the United States. And so what does the term single-payer mean to you and PNHP? Well, I think it's important to uh, understand what single-payer is in context to our multi-fragmented current system. Uh, So for you or your listeners who are uh, tuning into this, many times they have experienced multiple payers in their lives, whether it be one year having coverage through their employer and having, say, Aetna, and then their employer switches to United Healthcare the next year, or maybe they lose their job and they um, have to go on Medicaid because of financial hardships, or they turn 65 and they become uh, eligible for Medicare. Each of those is an individual payer. So when you go to a doctor, each time uh, they have to decide, well, am I, uh, you're with United Healthcare this year or Aetna or Medicaid? Am I in your network? What's your copay? What's your deductible? What am I able to um, do if I have to refer you to a physician? Who can I refer you to based on United Healthcare's uh, network or Aetna's network? So it becomes very complicated uh, and a lot of inefficiency is baked into the system. What a single payer does is eliminate all of these thousands of different health plans in our country and just implement one simple payer. That's all that the single payer is doing. It's becoming the de facto guarantor of coverage for every single person in the United States. Thanks so much. I think this is you know, a topic that we all hear, especially in the current political cycle, all the time on the radio. And one question I have for you sort of as a follow-up, um, can you explain the difference to our listeners um, between what single payer looks like in a place like Canada versus England and sort of how you envision single payer looking here in America? Absolutely. So first and foremost, um, single payer, uh, we have a single payer system in the United States and that's called Medicare. So the idea is that you just have one main uh, insurance agency or payment agency that handles all of the charges for all of the enrollees in that system. Um, Canada has such a system. Taiwan has such a system. 
Korea has such a system. The uh, UK does not have that type of system. They have a socialized medicine system. So a socialized system is where the uh, government owns and operates every single aspect of the healthcare system. They own the hospitals, they employ the doctors, the nurses, they own the pharmacy, they own the radiology um, departments, they own the labs. Every single aspect of that healthcare system is owned and operated by the government. Um, we actually have such a system here in the United States, and that's called our VA system. The people that fight for our freedoms are covered under a socialized system. Uh, when you hear people like myself advocating for a single-payer Medicare for All system, we're not advocating for a socialized system. We're not asking the government to take over all the hospitals and the clinics and the labs uh, or employ every single person that's uh, in the healthcare industry. All we're asking to do is replace the uh, multi-fragmented payer system with one pool of money that it is administered by a government agency that unlike the private insurance industry whose interests are not aligned with the interest of patients, a single-payer system would really be aligned based on medical data to do the right thing based on what we've all learned in medical school as the, uh, the standards of care. Who is going to decide in terms of the plan that PNHP is supporting and advocating for? Who decides what is and isn't medically necessary or should and shouldn't be covered? And is there any kind of danger in one governmental entity determining that? Well, before you, uh, I answer that, I would ask you or any of your colleagues who are currently practicing in our system, who makes the decisions on how they take care of their patients? Generally, it's somebody who's never been to medical school, not even have been a nurse, just somebody who's, quote, a case manager, who is basically telling you what drugs to prescribe, what tests you can do, what hospitals you can admit patients to, what scans you can uh, do. So um, I, I, I gently fight back against that question because I believe it's a little bit skewed um, based on not understanding the, the current situation that we all operate in now. So what we are saying is um, under a single payer system, it would be evidence-based. It would be uh, uh, made up of panels of experts who have actually cared for patients, understand healthcare policy, and are making decisions not based on financial interest to boost uh, profits and shareholder value, but rather what is truly medically uh, proven and accepted. Right. And for the critics of Medicare for all or for single payer who say that, you know, patients who like their health insurance plans and are going to be off of those um, onto a new plan that they may or may not like, what, how do you address those critics? So let's, let's really mm -hmm. tackle this head on. Majority of us have private insurance plans that are considered to have narrow networks. What that means is within your geographic area, what does that mean? That 75% of the doctors in your area, you are not allowed to see them under your current plan. Uh, so the idea that somehow eliminating the private insurance industry will reduce choice is completely ludicrous when the current system right now uh, doesn't even let us see 75% of the doctors in our, in our own neighborhoods. Um, so that is that I think is the most important thing for people to realize. When people talk about losing freedom, it's the private insurance industry, again, that tells you what doctors you can go to, what hospitals you can be admitted to. And I would ask you and your um, colleagues and also uh, listeners to take a step back and just look at the reality of what does the private insurance industry not allow us to do. Uh, 
And somehow, uh, if we eliminated that, what would it do for us as patients, as providers? I think it would provide us more choices, more opportunity. It would allow me to refer patients to any a doctor I need to do. So there's a lot of things that people don't realize. And when people say, well, we're just going to kick people off their private insurance, truly, they don't understand how uh, the private insurance industry limits every aspect of our healthcare day after day after day. I think a lot of the public conversation focuses on the patient, of course, and patient freedom and patient choices. But it does sound like what you're saying, which I think is a really important point, especially for our audience, that it also something like Medicare for all would expand the physician, the provider's freedom and providing care how they want to. It really would restore a lot of the fun of why we went into <laughs> medicine. And, and I have to tell you that I became very disillusioned as a radiation oncologist very early in my practice. I became mm-hmm. a full partner in a private practice very early on, was making a very lucrative salary, but I saw too many of my own patients who had cancer who were insured going bankrupt strictly because they had cancer. And many of them had you know, been fighting metastatic breast cancer for five, six, seven years, and they were financially ruined. On top yeah. of that, when I tried to get the right treatment for them, I would have to get on the phone and spend hours fighting denials and, and uh, getting preauthorization. As a matter of fact, in 2010, the American Medical Association did a study, and this is in 2010, and it's only gotten worse since then, that the average physician spent 20 hours a week on prior authorization and denials. And when people talk about a uh, uh, single-payer system, we're, that goes away. Uh, again, if you look, look at doctors who practice right now, they will tell you they spend very little to no time fighting with Medicare to do the treatments that they were trained to do. Whereas we're always on the phone with private insurance companies who are constantly trying to uh, nickel and dime us and, and deny us the opportunity to practice the way we, we can. The other thing is that the, in, in 2011, uh, a study in health affairs uh, found that the average physician's office was spending $83,000 per doctor to hire people to basically interact with the insurance industry to get paid. Um, so when you look at all of these hidden costs, all of that gets much more simplified under a single-payer system. If you look at physician burnout the last 10 years, it's at an all-time high. If you look at the number of physicians mm-hmm. who have left the practice of medicine, it's at an all-time high. And the reason being because uh, there's no fun in medicine when mm-hmm. you're spending less time with patients and more time fighting with insurance companies or filling out you know, copious amounts of paperwork so that your hospital can get reimbursed for some quality measure. Yeah. I, and I think that's a great transition to, you know, Medicare for all versus this public option or Medicare for more, Medicare for all those who want it, which, you know, I think Lancet study, which just came out out of Yale, basically was saying that those plans, Medicare for more, Medicare for all those who want it, would actually increase costs because we're not getting rid of the administrative burden. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Lancet paper um, and your thoughts on what it means. I mean, again, for our listeners, uh, the Lancet paper basically argued that Medicare for All uh, would save Americans more than $450 billion annually 
um, and prevent around 70,000 deaths per year. And that is roughly 13% of all U.S. healthcare expenditures. Right. So, so a couple things about that. If you uh, even before the Lancet paper came out, um, there was recently a study that was done by some medical students at UCSF. What they did was they did a meta-analysis and they looked at 22 studies which um, were done independently. Some were done by conservative organizations. Some were done by you know more I'd say progressive think tanks. But they looked at all of the published studies that were done on the cost impact for single-payer health insurance in the United States. And basically, they found that when they did a meta-analysis, they found that it was absolutely conclusive that a single-payer system would be more efficient. Uh, and so the Yale study was basically re-emphasizing that and, and very well done. I think what people need to understand about um, uh, the Yale study, because some people would say, well, Yale is more progressive. So I would balance that with the study that was done by the Mercatus Institute at George Mason University that was done about a year and a half ago. And the Mercatus Institute is a very conservative think tank that's funded by the Koch brothers. Uh, but they found that a single-payer plan uh, would actually be $2 trillion less over 10 years uh, compared to the current status quo uh, while insuring everyone. So even the most conservative site, uh, the Mercatus Institute study, showed that this would save money while insuring everyone and increasing their benefits. So I, as I say, I think people need to look beyond the political rhetoric and just look at these peer-reviewed, published uh, studies that really uh, show the uh, unequivocal benefits of the single-payer system. Speaking of that political rhetoric, let's say somebody like Senator Sanders or Senator Warren does get elected behind something like a Medicare for All plan, single-payer plan. What is the actual political feasibility of something like that coming to fruition? Or what do you see as the pathway to that actually being implemented? It's not a, uh, a done deal by any means. Remember, four years ago, when Senator Sanders ran on this, uh, the Democratic Party um, really condemned it. Uh, President Obama was against it. But this last year during the midterms, President Obama came out and said he thought Medicare for all was a good idea. You also have had a sea change in the now for the first time you have over 50 percent of the people in the United States believing in Medicare for all, whereas four years ago they'd never heard of it. Right. What, what changed? Uh, people are starting to share how the current dysfunctional healthcare system is not working for them. They're talking about despite having uh, a quote the best healthcare they can have, their copays and their deductibles are so high that still there's still medical bankruptcy. The fact that um, 87 million people in the United States are either uninsured or underinsured. Uh, and so uh, people are sharing how this current healthcare system is not working for them. How uh, every year they are asked to contribute more of their paycheck towards their health insurance uh, premium that's given to them by their employer on the front end. And then in, when they go to fill a prescription or they go see a doctor, they're being asked to pay more for co-pays and deductibles. So they have less take-home pay. So as more and more people share these stories, sadly, as more and more of us each have a family member that has to navigate through this healthcare system with some terrible illness, we start to see that the private insurance industry is not doing what it was says that it, it's doing in its glorious ads uh, that it places <laughs> uh, on TV and in stadiums and everywhere else. Right. 
Um, and that's what's changing. So the public perception is going to change. Now, as long as we still have members of Congress who are beholden to the private insurance industry and pharmaceutical industry, sure, we'll never get Medicare for all. But as, if we bring in people that really want to do the right thing for the constituents rather than for corporations, then you will start to see a sea change. So more and more physician practices are being bought by hospital systems and sort of the sole practitioner hanging their shingle on a single office doesn't really exist anymore. Thank you so much for answering. Um, we have one last wrap-up question for you. Um, we're wondering if you have any general advice for trainees who are interested in policy leadership, interested in organized medicine. Um, how do we get involved? How do we make changes? I applaud you all for being able to do this during residency and during medical school. To be honest, when I was in residency in medical school, healthcare policy was probably the last thing on my mind. Um, and uh, so when I first came into the system, I uh, was very naive and um, frankly ignorant. It was only because I started to see my own patients becoming bankrupted that I started to say, wait, the system is not really working. But I read everything to get a sense of what was really right and wrong about our healthcare system, what other countries were doing. And that's what I would say to each of uh, your listeners here. Don't just take what I've said uh, verbatim, uh, challenge it, do your own independent analyses, but also at the same time, get educated. But I would say regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, you really need to understand all the ins and outs of healthcare. Uh, because unless we do move to a single-payer system, it is only going to get more complicated, more um, uh, corrupted by the uh, influence of the pharmaceutical industry and the private insurance industry on our politics. Yeah, thank you so much. And I, I think that um, to our listeners, right, educating yourselves, whether you believe in um, a single-payer system or not, but on understanding the economics of the healthcare system is sort of what we're all about and um, why we started this podcast is to really make sure that trainees um, are getting education about how the system works so we can make it better for our patients. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Song. We really, really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate what you guys are doing, and thank you for having me. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. Mm -hmm.